Well, good morning, everyone. We're really glad you're here. Fourth week of the Gospel of Mark. Now, the Gospel of Mark is my favorite gospel in the Bible. There are four of them. They tell the story of Jesus. And we've been talking about it in four major themes. And I want to remind you of those real quick. We said that the first major theme in the Gospel of Mark is the theme of follow. That when Jesus came to this earth, what he invited people to do was to follow him. And here was his hope, that they would hang around with him long enough that they would begin to see the character of God. They would hear the words of God, the idea of God. They would understand the plan of God. And Jesus and God, of course, you know, in council in the Trinity up there in heaven, decided that the best way for people to really grab hold of what God wanted for them was to have a chance to see it up close and personal. So God sent Jesus to this earth, and Jesus invited the people around him to follow him, to be in a relationship. He didn't say, first, would you listen to my commands and do them? He didn't say, secondly, would you clean up your life? He didn't say, thirdly, would you learn the right stuff? What he said was, would you follow me? And then the second thing that Jesus asked people to do, we talked about this week too, was to believe, and not to simply have some ideas, not simply be religious, not simply get cleaned up, but would they believe that he was in fact the son of God, that he was the one that God sent to this earth to reconcile humanity, me and you, to God and away from the other plan for our life that leads to destruction. And then last week, we talked about another great concept in the book of Mark. It's the concept of trust. Would we move from simply some ideas about God that we hold as true, and would we in fact trust his character, his character? Now today, I want to take you to a place in your Bible in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, if you have your Bible and would like to go there. If not, the words will be behind me on the screen as we get to those places. But in Mark chapter 10, we get an amazing story. And you may have heard, if you've been around church for a while, this story before. But I want to take you not just to the details of the story, what Jesus said, what this other fellow said and did. I want to take you to the emotion. I want us for just a moment, and I'm sure you've done this before, or many of you have. I want you to put on your Sigmund Freud hat for just a second. And I want us to try to understand what might have been going on in the mind, in the heart, in the emotions of the guy that we're going to talk about today that has an encounter with Jesus. And I think what you're going to discover is not simply a few ideas, but I think you might be able to get to the heart, to the bedrock of what this gospel is all about. This gospel of Mark that was written so many years ago so that you and I could have an accurate representation of God's idea so that we could be invited into life with God that would leave us forever changed. So, Let me tell you a little bit about Jesus before we get rolling in this particular story. One day, while Jesus was walking around with the people that were following him, many of them putting their belief in him and beginning to trust him and see his heart for them, he told them a story in Mark chapter 4, and he said that there was a farmer who had seed in his pouch. And the farmer did like they did in the ancient Near East. He began to throw cast seed out in anticipation of a coming harvest one day. And some of that seed fell in various different places. Some fell on hard ground, some fell among thorns, some fell in good soil, some fell in bad soil. And depending on where the seed fell, the seed produced different types of result. 
And Jesus, when he was explaining this story or parable to his disciples, he said, look, I would like for you to be like good soil. I would like for you to be ready and primed to hear what I have to say. To not only hear it with your ears, but I would like for it to penetrate your heart. It was a refrain that Jesus used over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. If you're reading along with us as we're doing this message series, you might have come across this phrase that Jesus said. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the idea is not if you have physical ears, let the sound vibrations penetrate your ears, be translated into nerve endings, which your brain interprets as meaning or as sound, as communication, and you derive meaning from it. Not just that physical thing that takes place, but if you have ears to hear, that is, would you be open to receive? Would you be like good soil? We started week one talking about another uh, gentleman, other than the guy we're going to talk about today. His name was Matthew or Levi. And Matthew writes a book of the Bible later on. His life is so transformed by the message of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his life, that what happens is, is he decides to write out a story of Jesus' life. And in that story, he tells a story, a parable that you might have heard. Again, if you've been around church, if not, this is a great one. He says there were two men, two men. And one man decided that he would build his house on a rock and he developed his house and then just like in every life storms came there was wind there was hail and the storm buffeted the house but because it was built on a rock the house stood withstood the storm and if you grew up in church like i did you probably know the story um you might even know the song right the wise man no, nobody knows the song with me, right? Yeah, I heard a couple of words. So the wise man built his house on a rock, but then the other side of the story is the foolish man built his house on the sand. Thank you, though. Yeah, front row, awesome. Uh, right, right on the sand. And like life, the storms come, the waves buffet, the wind blows, and the house on the sand fell flat, right? And then here's what Jesus said. Let me tell you what that story means, he says. Matthew records it. He says, here's the deal. The wise man is like the people who hear my words and they, now here's, here's the key. It's getting right close to where we're going today. And they put into action what I say. The wise man is not the one who hears and lets the sound waves penetrate and they take some mental notice of what is said. No, 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 that's not the wise man or the wise woman. The wise man or the wise woman is the one who hears what I say and then puts it into practice. You do it. And then conversely, the foolish man is like the person who, now listen, this is where it gets to bedrock. They're not ignorant of what I said. They've heard it as well. They have cognitive understanding of what I've said. But the foolish man, the guy who built his house on the sand, they don't put into practice what I say. And then when the storms of life come, and they always come, don't they? and the wind blows, and the waves buffet, that house, the house of the person who is the guy or the girl who hears what I says but does not put into practice what I tell them to do, well, their house falls. It can't sustain. It gets blown away. So all through the Gospel of Mark, there's this process where Jesus is trying to get us all the way up close to him. And if you're not careful today, what's going to happen is you're going to think I'm saying one thing because what we're going to talk about is important 
It's a big deal. It makes the difference between whether you're wise or foolish. And last time I checked, very few people want to be foolish. It's a big deal, but it's probably not a big deal in the way that many people who come to church, they're in churches all over America today, many people come to church and they think that what I'm talking about is wise or helpful in one way when Jesus says it's helpful potentially in another way, in a way that brings major life to you, major lift to you, major hope and encouragement. So it's very important as we get started here today on our fourth major theme in the Gospel of Mark that you make sure you follow me closely, all right? And so here's our fourth theme. Obey. Obey. So if you're our guest today, you might would have expected that if you came to church, what I would talk about is making sure that you could get your life cleaned up, that you get good, do it right, finally get it together, get rid of the sin, follow God. But what I want to do before you go there mentally and emotionally, and often when you go there emotionally, you just begin to tune out, because you already know by this point in life that it's pretty hard to live up to all that the Bible tells us to live up to. If you take all the rules and all the laws and all the commands and all the suggestions in the Bible, that list is, well, it's massive. And it's difficult, it's hard, and about the time you think you've got it, because maybe if you're a guy and you haven't had an affair, you read the words of Jesus, and he says it's not only about having an affair, it's about when you look at a woman and something happens in your heart. And so then you realize it's not even just the rules, but it's this interior thing that's going on, and it's not only what I do, but it's what I think and what I process and what I dwell on, and then the list just gets larger. And so the idea of obeying can be... Very difficult, very challenging. And that's why, guys and ladies, God left us his word called the Bible. And he asked us to be familiar with it so that we wouldn't go to those emotional places on subjects as important as obedience. And in going to those emotional places, disconnect, feel overwhelmed, get discouraged. Instead, he left us his scripture so that we could read what he really said about these ideas and not simply what we think he said about these ideas. So the Gospel of Mark tells the story primarily of a group of 12 followers of Jesus who began to follow. They had moments of belief. They began to trust all in an attempt to get them to do the things Jesus talked about. The wise man is the one who does the things Jesus talks about. So in what sense... Is it wise? And in what sense does Jesus want us to obey? We're going to get to our story in a moment. It'll move very quickly. But first, I want to take you back a couple uh, hundred years before the events that we're talking about to a time when God first created human beings. Thousands of years, who knows, millions of years. Don't know for sure. But there was a time when there was one man, one woman. God gave them this incredible earth. And he said, all of it's here for your enjoyment. In fact, not just enjoyment. Here's the beautiful word. It's here for your stewardship. I want you to manage it. And in managing it well, you'll get to enjoy it. There's one rule. One rule. Don't eat of this one tree. Now the gift, the blessing, came before the rule. And the rule was given so that the people who were given the blessing could enjoy the blessing for all time. You may know the story. They didn't follow the rule, and as a consequence, the blessing became harder to experience, and they didn't get to experience it for all time. It was quite limited. Move forward a few hundred years, and there's this nation of Israel, and God says to them, I'm going to take you out of slavery, out of Egypt. 
And God brings them unbelievable freedom through a dramatic display of his power. Ten plagues, firstborn sons of Egypt killed and Israel set free and they move forward and there's no food and food rains from heaven and there's no water and water comes from a rock and this small band of people come up against much better trained armies and the small band is victorious. God is demonstrating his might and power and about halfway through their journey, they arrive at a mountain and at that mountain, God gives them a list of rules. But before the rules, there was the freedom and there was the blessing, but then God gives them a list of rules and he says, if you follow these rules, then what will happen to you is you'll be able to experience the joy and the blessing that I've already given you over the course of your life. The rules will protect and ensure. And what God was saying to them was, I don't just want you to obey me. I want you to do what I tell you to do because in doing that, my heart for you will be lived out in your life. You will experience joy and freedom, and real life. We've shortened that idea of God down into three words at this church. You'll experience real love now. You'll experience all that I have for you. You'll get it. Jesus and God, they were teaching the followers there in the Old Testament and ultimately in the New Testament what the heart of God was like. They were building trust because trust precedes obedience. Trust precedes obedience. The trust in the heart of your heavenly father becomes a fertile soil on which the obeying, the obedience of your life makes sense. But sometimes in some churches or in some people's lives emotionally, we put obedience at the top of the list. We're so aware where we have fallen short. We have a consciousness of our mistakes. That's not a bad thing. But then this crazy, twisted, manipulative guilt and frustration gets put over the process where we feel then incapacitated to connect with the God who never said to us, get it cleaned up and then I'll bless your life. What he said was, I would like you to follow me. I would like for you to put your trust in me and who I really am. I'm God and I'm inviting you into a relationship with me. I would like you to trust my character and my heart for you. And in doing that, you might find that obedience, while not necessarily completely easy, is more graspable. It's more doable. This is the struggle of the guy we're looking at today. In Mark chapter 10, here's the background story before I read the words. The Bible says that a man comes to Jesus and he's impressed with all that he's said and heard. He hears in Jesus wisdom. He sees in Jesus power. There's authority. And his heart is moving towards this Jesus. And he goes to Jesus and he says to him, oh, Rabbi, teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to be a part of the thing you're talking about? And Jesus takes him on a personal journey, the same journey in just a few words in your Bible that he's been taking Adam and Eve on the nation of Israel, and all of his disciples through the gospel of Mark. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to, this was a Jewish man, he understood the context of what Jesus was saying. He says, what you need to do is you need to obey all the commandments. And the, the young man says, look, I've been doing that. In fact, you know, I'm sure he would say I'm not perfect, but since my youth, I have obeyed my parents, one of the big 10. I've kept the Sabbath. I'm assuming he could have said, I haven't stolen, 
I haven't killed. I haven't committed adultery. I don't covet. I don't worship idols. I don't take the name of the Lord in vain. I worship God as the God above. He was doing the rules. Now, what's interesting here, this is where we begin to do our kind of armchair psychoanalysis of the guy. It was interesting is all the rule keeping did not give this guy an internal sense of connecting with God. He had kept the rules, but there was still a void, the very void that compelled him to go to Jesus and say, what do I need to do? What more is there? What list should I follow? And so Jesus goes along, not in an attempt to bring confusion to this guy, but in an attempt to bring clarity. Jesus looks at him and he says, you're right. You've done it all. And if I were the guy, I would have thought, oh, wow, done it all. But Jesus doesn't stop talking there. See, what God is interested in in your life, just like in the life of this young man in the Bible, is he's interested in taking all of you to all of him. All of you to all of him. I often want God to touch various parts of my life. God wants to take all of me to all of him. All that God has for us, his full heart for you, fully embraced by you. His full heart for me, fully embraced by me. The heart that says, before I gave you a list of rules, I demonstrated my generosity and grace to you. That's what he said to Adam and Eve. The heart that says to the nation of Israel, before I gave you the Ten Commandments, I had already freed you, had already called you to myself, had already sent you towards the promised land, but I knew if you had gotten to the promised land and didn't understand how to maintain the character and the virtue that I wanted you to maintain, you would lose the very gift I've given you. The heart that said to me, then while you were still sinning, Christ died for you. I didn't wait for you to get cleaned up before I sent a sacrifice. I didn't wait for you to make a commitment before I sent a sacrifice. While you were still sinning, Christ died for you. And so Jesus looks at the rich young man in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Here's what it says. Jesus looked at him and then here's his heart on display. The heart that builds trust. And he loved him. There was compassion in his eyes, not anger in his voice. I don't know what you imagine the tone of the conversation would be if you got face-to-face with Jesus. But if it isn't the look of love, then you don't have a picture of him that is correct. His heart, his eyes, his mouth, his words, they're love-filled. He looked at him and he loved him. And out of love, he said, not out of judgment, not out of anger, Not out of, I'm up here and you're down here. Jesus had already decided to take off all the forms of deity and take on human flesh and come and live among us. So out of love, he says, one thing you lack. And this is where he gets the pay dirt. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. It's a similar appeal. But now we're way into the process. We're at the point where Jesus is saying, I'm going to reveal to you the obstacle. Now the obstacle had a form. We're going to put our Freud hat back on for just a moment. The obstacle had a form for this man. It was his material blessing. It was his preoccupation with his stuff. This man's not unlike many of us. But the point of today's message isn't Let's deal with our material stuff in an appropriate way and see it the way God sees it. Mm -mm. 
the question I'm asking you to consider is, why did Jesus say to this guy, let's deal with the obstacle? What does this exchange say about God's heart for us? What does it say about the obstacles to obedience in our own life? Let's look at what happens. Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, this gets interesting. This is where we start doing the analysis. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This, by the way, echoes a theme Jesus had been talking about, that the number one competitor for the hearts of people against God is stuff. It isn't the devil, it's stuff. It isn't sex, it's stuff. The number one competitor is not unforgiveness, it's stuff. And Jesus was dealing with the number one competitor against God for people's hearts. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, verse 24, the disciples were amazed at the words of Jesus again. They get it and they don't get it. It doesn't make sense initially and Jesus has to teach them. And Jesus said again, I love this, children. It's one of those tender places where he looks at his disciples and he calls them children. He takes on the role of a father. I'm gonna teach you. I'm gonna grow you. I'm gonna develop you. I'm here for your good. I'm watching out for you. Children, children. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier. And then he picks a big animal that they all were familiar with. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, something they were familiar with, a very small hole, very big animal, than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now they've got it. It's sunk in. This is a difficult task. But then verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed. And they said to either, then, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, I like this. This is when the relief of the tension begins to be given to us. With man, with, with human beings, this is impossible. Nobody can be saved by themselves. A camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible with God. We're going to save the last verse for just a few minutes. Now, let, let me tell you what I think is going on here, and it's bore out by the rest of the teaching of the Gospel of Mark. It's not simply that the riches had hold of this man's heart. The other dynamic that goes along is almost always complementary with, with any obstacle people have in following God is this rich young man did not have an appropriate grasp of who was talking to him. He didn't have a clear view of Jesus. His understanding was skewed. Now, let me, let me walk you through just a few observations. If he had understood, for instance, the authority of Jesus, who he really was, he was with God in the beginning. Let us make human beings in our image. He was the one who was sitting on a throne in heaven. He's the one that will come back and get his children. And if he understood, had a clear enough picture, if the image of Jesus had filled this man's heart enough, when Jesus said to him, sell your stuff, the image of Jesus would have been large enough and loud enough. There would have been enough trust that obedience, though still probably difficult, becomes now something that can be attained. The issue wasn't simply that money or stuff had a hold of this man's heart. It's that Jesus did not have enough room, did not have a big enough place in this man's heart. 
I'm going to suggest to you that everywhere you and I come into a situation of conflict between where we, we will obey God or we will do our own thing, obey God or pursue our own passions, almost always there is, of course, the passion and our own agenda there. But the real problem isn't what's in our heart. The real problem is what is not in our hearts. What we don't see clearly. Had he seen Jesus clearly and saw his authority, had he saw Jesus clearly and understood the motivation of Jesus, Jesus could care less, couldn't care less if this man had a lot of stuff or a little bit of stuff. He just knew that the number one competitor for human beings' heart would be their stuff. We would get preoccupied with stuff. We would worry about stuff. And in our worrying and preoccupation, we would shorten and shrink the space of our heart allotted to God and our relationship with him. That stuff would physically crowd him out. And that was his concern. He was trying to deal and help this man see what was really going on in his own heart. If he had seen the authority of Jesus, had he seen the motive of Jesus, I'm for you, not against you. I want what you want for you. I even want it more than you do. And more than wanting it, I know how to help you get there. What if he had simply seen the example of the sender who would have said, the young man potentially could have said, that price is too high to pay. And in just a few months, Jesus is going to pay the ultimate price and say to him, look, I know these words are hard, but let me tell you about what I'm about to do. I'm about to give my life for you. The words that you see me do and the miracles you see me display, they're only in anticipation of an ultimate price I'm about to pay. The price I'm asking you to pay, Jesus could have said to the guy, pales in comparison to the example I'm about to leave you. I'm going to suggest to you, friends, that if there is a gap between what you know God has called you to do, if there's an area of sin in your life, if there's an area of disobedience, if there's a door that God has opened for you and you have not walked through it yet, no matter what else you might be thinking, I'm going to suggest that you might not have a clear enough picture of Jesus. He may not hold enough real estate in your heart. And that's ultimately what he's after. God is not concerned with your obedience as his primary concern for you. He's concerned in whether or not you'll believe that he is the path to God. He's who he said he was. He's the son, the very son of God. He wants you to trust him and he wants you to willingly engage and follow, continue to follow, fail and follow, succeed and follow and be wise and do what he tells you to do. Why don't we? I think because we're often like this young man. And maybe we believe potentially like he did that if we have enough religion, then we got enough. All of this have I kept since my youth. I've done it all. While other people were sleeping around, not me. Other people were getting drunk, not me. Other people disobeying their parents, not me. Other people, not me, not me, not me. I'm, I've been doing it all, and I wonder if in this man's life, maybe in somebody's in this room, we don't think that because we generally keep the form of religion as we understood it, if we think that somehow then we're okay but when we're honest like this man was, that we still feel the gap between us and God. Because religion, following its forms and structure, will never connect you to God. It won't. 
In fact, what I have found is religion fully embraced, that is, doing the rules, keeping it up, following the form and structure. What it tends to do is one of two things. It convinces people that they can't live up to it and they bail out, or they assess that they're doing pretty good and they fully engage that structure, but often their hearts are cold, aloof, they're mean, they're judgmental. And so religion is not the path, but a relationship, what the Bible calls the gospel. Religion says, I obey, and then I'm accepted. But the gospel says, here here it is, I'm accepted. And because I'm accepted first, then I want to obey. I understand how important obedience is. I understand that Jesus says, I'm foolish if I hear his words, understand his words, and don't do his words. But I don't do his words to get him to be in a relationship with me. I am in a relationship. I've already been gifted the garden. I've already been set free. I've already been given salvation. I'm accepted. Then I obey. And it changes everything. Yes, obedience is important. And you and I are foolish when we don't obey. But we don't obey to secure it. Obedience is the last of the major movements in Mark's gospel. They're walking with him. They're with him even when they fail. Their failure doesn't break the relationships. They're just following. And over time, they begin to believe and see him for who he is. One day, long before Jesus is disowned by Peter, Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, Peter, listen, this is big stuff. Flesh and blood hasn't told you this, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. He had momentary flashes of brilliance. And the next moment, Peter's failing but he's growing in his belief and he's growing in his trust and he's getting to that point and he's not there yet. But obedience becomes something he does in response to God's grace, not to earn it. And that brings him great freedom and it brings him great boldness to be able to stand after his great failure. He's denied Jesus three times. And a few pages later in your Bible, book of Acts, Peter is standing before a crowd and saying, let me tell you about this Jesus. He just denied him in front of a little girl. He cusses and swears like a sailor in front of a little girl and says, I've never even heard of a man named Jesus. And a few chapters later, he's standing with boldness and he says, I want to tell you about this Jesus. I didn't earn it, but God sent him to earth. He gave his life. I was a sinner, but he saved me. And then Peter looks at the crowd and says, guess what we did? We killed him. You killed him. And with great boldness, he proclaims the gospel. And he ends his sermon by saying, so save yourselves from this world's system and put your trust and faith in God. How did Peter transform? Did he decide I need to try harder? Or did he decide I'm going to let God have full control of my heart. I'm going to give him all the real estate of my heart. Religion says, my motivation for obeying is based on fear or insecurity. But the gospel says, my motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. And there's a certain wisdom in that. You follow the teachings of God, life goes better but we don't do it to get. The gospel says, I obey God to get to God. And then I delight and I resemble him. I obey his command to follow and I walk and I let him teach and grow and I engage the conversation. 
and my obedience grows as I understand him. But it hasn't secured the thing. He first initiated to me. I didn't initiate to him. The very desire I have to pursue God comes as a gift of faith to me from God long before I knew what it was called. Religion says when the circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe that if I followed him, he'd bless me and my life would be easy. But the gospel says when the circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, of course. But I know all of the punishment that I deserved fell on Jesus. And that while he may allow this difficulty for my training, he will exercise his love for me in the middle of the thing, even as my character is being developed. Religion says, when I'm criticized and somebody doesn't give me the credit I deserve, and they don't see how good I really am. I'm furious. I'm devastated because my identity has been shattered. Who I want you to think I am gets, gets damaged. My self-image takes a hit. But the gospel says, when I'm criticized, I can take it. Of course I struggle. But it's not critical for me to think of myself as a good person. I know that my goodness did not secure this thing with God. And my identity isn't built simply on what you think about me. It's based on what Jesus did for me and the love that he has for me. Religion says, my prayer life is built mainly on my petitions for God and an attempt to control my environment and make my life better. But in the gospel, my prayer becomes statements of generosity and gratitude towards God and praise and adoration. And I use it as a vehicle to fellowship with him to get to know him better. There's a major difference in why we are encouraged to obey. I suppose there are three options here today. You may choose to not obey at all and without any meanness of spirit at all towards you. When you do that, you're foolish. If you obey 99.9% of the time and there's that one-tenth of one percent of holdout of disobedience in you, the Bible says you're foolish. So am I when I do that. You may, option number two, choose to obey. But obey in some vain attempt to get God to have favor towards you and to simply bless you. You may realize that following God's law does make more sense just logically and you do it out of that and you'll have a decent run with that. You will. You will be elevated to a different plane and a lot of the junk of life won't touch you. A lot of it. Not all, but a lot of it you'll be avoiding. But that still won't satisfy your soul. And it won't bring you into a relationship with the very God who gave you the wisdom to live life anyway. Or option three. You can search your heart and ask God to search your heart and say, God, what part of the real estate of my being, my existence, that's what I mean by heart, have I not given over to you? What part of who you are hasn't flooded my soul? What image of you do I have wrong? Would I ever be like the guy who comes to you and says, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And then you tell me, and I, I go away sad because I'm not willing to pay that price because truthfully, what was in the road, what was in my life was bigger than you were. And in doing those kinds of searches and that kind of honesty, you could be basically giving over more real estate of your life to God, giving over more of who you are to him. Asking him to enlarge his picture of you. Obedience matters. It's a big deal. Having seed fall on fertile soil is a big deal to God. 
but not to secure your relationship with him. And so what that means is when you and I fail in obedience, the very grace that initiated is present for us. When we have failed in our understanding, the very grace that he brought to us is available to us. In a moment, we're getting ready to take communion. And there's this powerful passage around communion that says this. And it's a little scary. Let me unpack it for you. It says that no one should take communion in an unworthy manner. That to do that, you're inviting all kinds of calamity into your life. And so some people read that and like, whoa, whoa. That's what the Bible says? I thought this was just something we did. And they realize, I, I don't live up. I don't, I, don't, I don't measure up to that. So I guess I'm, I'm exempted. I guess I don't qualify. What that passage is asking us to do, as Paul explained it in his letter to the Corinthians, says, as you get ready to partake and remember the grace that was offered to you, do inventory, do a quick assessment, and in a fresh and new way, make yourself fully available to God. Fully available. It is not saying, get it all perfect, be in full alignment, be in full obedience, and then when you're in perfect alignment, then you can come enjoy communion. It's saying, come here humbly. Understanding you didn't earn this. Understanding that the wisdom that you're trying to follow to obey is a gift from God to you to live the life he has for you. So that when you fail, the very relationship he wanted to you becomes the foundation. The grace becomes the foundation of your ability to get up and keep walking. So you come not unthoughtfully. You come not self-righteously. But you come humbly. God, I don't deserve this. What this means is, if you're not a perfect obeyer, but you're willing to lean in and let God have hold of your heart, you're fully qualified. Not because you match up, but because you're giving more of your life to Him. And so when we take this thing, it's an act of joy. It's an act of celebration. It's the ultimate act of come as you are, and I will receive you. Come without holding anything back. Let me have all of you. So we're going to do that in a moment. But first, would you take out your connect card and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. Jesus' brother was writing later on in life in the book of James and he said, let us not be hearers of the word only, but let us be doers. And he talked about putting our faith into practice. We're going to try to do a little bit of that today, take a few steps together. I wonder if there's anybody in the room that would say, I'd like you to do next step A, and I'd like to accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life for the first time. It's a big deal to us. You didn't earn it. Your life may not match it up at all. You may feel totally disqualified, and if you do, you're in the exact right place. Because you are, and so was I, and so was everybody in this room who put their faith and trust in Jesus. We were fully disqualified to have a right relationship with God. So if that's you and you want to take that step, check the box. And we'll send you an email and something in the mail just helping you understand exactly how much God loves you and what he wants for you. We make no demand of you. We're not trying to get you to join our church. We just want you to be able to walk in the life that God has for you. Next step B, I want to get baptized. Look, I'm beginning to understand with greater clarity just how big Jesus is and how much of my life he wants to be a part of. So I want to go public with that and let everybody know 
I'm all the way in. I'm fully submerged in Jesus. If that's you, check the box. We'll get you lined up. Now some statements of honesty. Next step C. I have a hard time trusting in the finished work of Jesus to secure my relationship with God. Listen, if as I was talking, if you're struggling, check that. Let the staff and I pray with you this week. Pray for you this week that your image of Jesus would grow and it would crowd out any other obstacle. Next step D. I trust in the work of Jesus, but too often I'm guilty of merely listening to the word without doing what it says. Listen, if that's you, check the box. It's a statement of your first steps towards repentance. God, I can't believe all you've done for me. And I'm still struggling with this foolish thing over here. God, I want your image of, my image of you to grow and I want this thing to dim. And then I want to take the step to follow what you asked me to do. All right, next step B. Right now, I'm talking in a specific way. I know an area where I'm walking in disobedience. Now, this, this takes boldness. And you may think, hey, I've been going to church too long. I'm too involved in this church. I can't admit that. Don't be foolish. I'm walking in disobedience, but right now, even as I come and take communion, I'm making things right with God. And I'm gonna get up from here and walk in better obedience to a God who has given me everything. I'm gonna walk in gratitude and joy, not sorrow-filled, anger-looking obedience, but joy-filled, grateful obedience. Let's pray and then take communion together. Lord Jesus, you're an amazing God. Thank you for the gospel of Mark that shows us this process of development that ends in us living the life you've called us to full of joy, full of really living, full of generosity and gratitude, full of grace. Today, Lord, we come as a body of Christ, one example of it. And we celebrate your death and resurrection. We ask you to take our brokenness and make us whole. We ask you to cover our sin by your shed blood. God, make your image in our lives grow. And help us not to be simply hearers of the word, but doers. Help us to be obedient. In Christ's name, amen.